Welcome once again to the Dr. Sky Show, proudly heard on NewVoices.com and the many radio affiliates around the country that the Dr. Sky Show has aired on. If you're a first-time listener to the Dr. Sky Show, our subject matter includes the realms of astronomy, space, aviation, and weather, all visible on the Internet at www.drsky.com. As Dr. Sky rolls the world through the Internet and around the world and other media, we're proud to have today as a very special guest on our program. An icon of radio and television broadcasting for well over half a century and the longtime anchor and managing editor of the CBS Evening News. It is a high honor and privilege to welcome Mr. Walter Cronkite to a discussion with Dr. Sky. Welcome, Mr. Cronkite. Good to, good to talk to you in one of my favorite corners of the world. Well, thank you very much for being interested in the subject matter today, which, of course, goes everywhere from astronomy, space, aviation, and, of course, broadcast journalism. But first, if I may, I'd like to let you enlighten all the listeners about how did you first become interested in the space program from a journalistic perspective? Well, I tell you, I, uh, I'm old enough to go back a long way into the world of aviation. Uh, the... Uh, I had my first uh, airplane ride in a, a Waco uh, uh, open cockpit airplane with a Curtis OX-5 engine on it. Uh, my father took me for a ride with a uh, with a uh, barnstormer in Kansas City, Missouri, where we lived then. Uh, he had uh, done some flying in World War One, and this, uh, by the time I was six years old, was was just uh, a couple of years, three years after we'd signed an armistice. So uh, it was fairly early on in the days of aviation. And as a matter of fact, uh, we uh, had a little uh, unexpected landing on that flight. So my interest and excitement in aviation was a very, came very early in my childhood. I followed it then all through my young years, reading about it, hitching rides whenever I could. And the, that naturally uh, led into an interest as we began to develop uh, rocketry and a new form of propulsion that gave us the promise of getting out into space with human beings. I, uh, uh, my next uh, personal experience was it with it in World War II in London when we were being assaulted by Hitler's uh, flying bombs, as they were called, yes. and, uh, and the deeper V-2s that came in with true rocketry. Uh, so I, I saw, saw that firsthand. I saw, actually saw a launch from 150 miles away after we landed with the Airborne, that is, we, the correspondent, landed with the Airborne in the Netherlands, and the uh, uh, the Germans were launching their V-2s from Vossenaar in, uh, in the Netherlands, the far west side of the Netherlands. We were on the east side, 150 miles or so away, and I could, I could see the contrails going up as they launched their rockets on London. Uh, so my curiosity was immediately aroused, particularly when they bombed me out of my apartment. Oh, geez! In uh, in London, but uh, as the space program began here, uh, naturally I I wanted to follow it as a story, and uh, as the managing editor of the CBS Evening News, I assigned myself to it, <laughs> and that that made it easy for me to cover it. Mr. Cronkite, moving on to the days of the Apollo program, this is fascinating. Was President Kennedy really the driving force behind us going to the moon? And did you ever, did he ever share some of his passion about this with you directly? President Kennedy, uh, uh, well, it was mentioned once or twice in conversations, and uh, I, there was no question that he uh, he was uh, very serious about it and had a. I don't know that I would call it a passion. Uh, uh, 
include a kind of a inner excitement about it that right. I didn't really see uh, from Kennedy, but that does not mean he didn't have it. It, uh, it could just simply mean that I didn't have the kind of time to develop that sort of a, uh, of a discussion with him. What were some of your thoughts and feelings as you reported in that very historic day? Uh, I'm sorry, I'm disorderly understanding that. I'm sorry. What would you say? I was asking you, what thoughts and feelings did you have as you reported that man had finally landed on the moon after Neil Armstrong made that historic well, first effort? Well, uh, I, uh, I've said before that I had just as much time to prepare for a man's landing on the moon as NASA did. <laughs> I, I covered the development of NASA even before it was NASA when it was all part of the Air Force program and rocketry. And uh, so I had all that time to prepare for it. Wally Shira, the astronaut from the original Mercury program, uh, who was my uh, technical assistant uh, in, in, the, in the the mysteries of spaceflight at the anchor desk, uh, he kept asking me all night as we were waiting for the landing up there. He said, "What are you going to say? What are you going to What are you going to say?" And I said, "Well, Wally, I never plan anything like this in advance of what I'm going to say. I I know the facts that I." want to include, but uh, as to how I phrase them exactly, I don't know what I'm going to say, but don't worry about it. I'll, I'll be saying something. Well, when when, uh, when they announced that man was on the moon, all I could say was, wow, <laughs> golly, gee. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> you immortal words. <laughs> That's very, very interesting. I've also had the privilege and honor of interviewing Captain Shira, and I would agree he's a, a wonderful person. And we share some thoughts on uh, some of the same concepts about going to space, as I'm sure he's helped you over the course of, course of time. But of all the astronauts that you've interviewed in that area, who, in your mind, stands out as probably some of the more interesting or intriguing individuals? Well, uh, Wally himself was one of the most interesting, simply because Wally has a great sense of humor. And, uh, and uh, uh, we weren't getting a lot of that out of the space program, not on the air or in interview situations where the uh, astronauts were all trying to be as serious as they possibly could about this very uh, very great load that they were carrying of successfully getting us out to the moon and back safely in that decade. And uh, the space flight was a heroic effort on their part. They had every right to play it the way they wanted to play it. But Wally uh, would get on the air and not, not quite play it as seriously as some of the others which made him a lot of fun to be around. Right, more down-to-earth. Yes. Well, yes. <laughs> if you want to make that pun, I'll let you do it. <laughs> sure. Yeah, but uh, but all the, all of them were interesting. I think it would be hard to pick one above the other. They each had their own personality. They, only had, they each had their own interests in particular aspects of space flight. Uh, and uh, and uh, to, to the same question, you could get several answers about motivation. And, uh, and how they felt about the flight itself. Uh, there, there was a uh, there was a wonderful story that uh, that uh, Wally Sherall told me. As a matter of fact, or that, that that is the answer he gave me when I said, "Come on, Wally, uh, when we hear about your original flights in this Mercury," and he was the third man to fly, I think, as I remember. Yes. He uh, he uh, uh, he. I said, "Come on, Wally, you know." All of you guys are so serious, and, and and when we ask you about what you're really thinking of as you lay there on that couch with your with your face to the sky, and 
in that little tiny capsule uh, the what were you really thinking of? You could keep telling us how brave you all were, and you you had all this redundancy built in, and there wasn't any concern about it. And he said, "Well, I can tell you what I I thought." He said, "Waiting on that on that little redstone rocket there, uh, the uh, to, to go up." Uh, he said, uh, "The uh, when the redstone anyway lying there in the in the in the capsule Mercury capsule." Yes. He said, "I looked at all those." instruments, I looked at all the buttons, I looked at all those toggle switches that I had to hit at certain times, and I had all that plumbing that I could see for the, the, the important fuels that were being used, and he said, I looked at all of that lying on my back waiting for that rocket to go up, and I said to myself, good gosh, just think, this whole thing was built by the lowest bidder. <laughs> yes, and that's absolutely correct, and amazingly it worked. That's what we uh, look at in the history of the space program. Just a few more questions that I think our audience would certainly love to have your opinion and perspective on. But with the recent mission of Dennis Tito, the first official, quote, tourist in space, what is your feeling about private citizens going to the space? And would you yourself, if I'm correct, you yourself were slated to go up as a future tourist or sometime in history? I think I've heard that, that you were looking to do that. Oh, yes. we uh, the, the, uh, the government was going to send... Uh, a uh, journalist as the first uh, as the first civilian in space after the two members of space committees from Capitol Hill they were going to play their politics first right. then the journalist was going and uh, they were in the process of eliminating uh, those who they didn't think were qualified getting down to a few I think they were down to about uh, 10 or 12 while I was still in the running and uh, we, we were anticipating one of us being selected and one selected as a backup and taking all the training and going, uh, un- uh, unfortunately for for the teacher, uh, maybe fortunately for us, but unfortunately perhaps for history, right. the, uh, uh, the, the teacher, of course, was lost on the shuttle. Yes, very sad. Uh, President Reagan uh, was trying to uh, uh, build votes with the teachers' union and uh, ad-libbed uh, in a speech in Chicago at their convention and I'm going to see that a teacher is the first who goes into space. So poor Krista McAuliffe was, yes. the, was the one selected for the Challenger flight, uh, which was the flight that the journalists would have been on. But despite that, I think most journalists would uh, would go in a minute to space. It's a great story, and, uh, and uh, I, I would go today if they'd only let me. Oh, that would be wonderful. As you know, Arizona State University's School of Journalism and Telecommunications is named in your honor. Can you give some advice for students listening here that would like to pursue a major and a career in broadcasting to hear it from yourself, I think, would be most impacting? Well, my, uh, my advice to them is, would be to, to learn the arts of journalism uh, long before they tackle the practicalities of broadcast. Uh, I think if they learn to write and to report and to, uh, to understand the principles and ethics of good journalism. Uh, they can uh, write for a newspaper or a magazine or the Internet or broadcast uh, the, the techniques of uh, broadcasting. While there are, particularly in television, some fundamental cosmetic uh, situations that have to be faced, unfortunately, uh, they, uh, uh, the person who has the capability of, uh, of following these journalistic principles uh, is the one who is going to succeed. Wonderful advice, and 
Just one last closing question or two, if possible. What are some of your latest projects that people, whether it be on the Internet, uh, radio, and or television, can stay in touch with some of the activities that you're now involved in? Well, I uh, I do a lot of speaking, public speaking, and uh, and some magazine writing, and uh, and uh, I write forwards to friends' books. I may be the foremost forward writer in the United States today. The uh, but the uh, that's a joke, of course. No. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't hear you laughing, so I have to be careful. No, no, no. I'm just patiently listening. But I, I do understand. <laughs> well, I, I've I've kept very busy and. Uh, and uh, of course, I still have contacts. I, I still play the reporter role, whether I'm actually on the air or not. I pick up the phone and call sources in government, and private business, to when a story interests me and probe it a little bit, make some capital out of it with my speak, with my talks around. It's very fascinating. Just want to thank you, Mr. Cronkite, for taking the time to join me, Dr. Sky, here on our program today, and I'm sure our audience is most thrilled with hearing directly from you as we have uh, some of the historic portions of the space program. And I myself remember at age 45 today, back in 1969, on that very historic date, when you told all the world about our first human being, Neil Armstrong, setting foot on the moon. I remember, like many of us, watching in a small black and white television. And even to this day, I find it incredible that we really did go there. But it really is a high honor and privilege, and I want to thank you for coming on. What Dr. Sky is doing well, is... Pass, pass my best wishes to uh, all my friends out there at ASU and the journalism school there. Oh. It's a great program they've got, and uh, well, I'm very happy to say that uh, it's winning a lot of plaudits around the uh, journalism world. You know that as a former professor in the, in the business yourself. Well, thank you very much, and Mr. Cronkite, it's a high honor, and I do hope we can speak again. And your words are most uh, you know, exciting to the listeners out there and most motivating. Thank you, sir, and uh, Godspeed to you, and look forward to speaking to you soon, and uh, a rapid recovery to you, please. You bet. Thank you, sir. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye now. As Dr. Sky always encourages you, please always remember to keep your eyes to the skies.